0: As Josh said, my name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as a lead pastor, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. This past week, my family and I spent a few days down in New York City. Uh, we have some family that lives in Nyack, and so we went and stayed with them, and then we took a, a trip on Friday into Brooklyn and Queens uh, to enjoy the city, specifically to enjoy the food of the city. Um, but, you know, we, were, we drove down Thursday, and then we drove back yesterday. And as we were driving back yesterday... I kind of was looking around the car and just thinking about how much travel has changed since I was a kid. So I'll turn forty next month, and so it's been a little while since I was the kid in the back seat of a car. But it was very, very different when I was a kid traveling. Um, I was thinking of a few different ways. One is like one of the big ways that things have changed in the last thirty years is is safety, right? We're a society that's obsessed now with safety. I think you're supposed to sit in a booster seat till you're about 35 years old. I mean, that's what it, that's what it feels like. But, uh, we have all, uh, different ways of protecting our children from rear-facing. Uh, it's just a scam. It's a scam because they make you like, you gotta buy like six of them by the time your kid is seven years old. So there's rear-facing, there's front-facing, and then there's different boosters. And so one's with backs, one without backs. And man, when I was a kid, it was just like, just, we just got thrown in the back. I mean, we used to have this brown conversion van all carpeted on the inside, no seats in the back. We were just bouncing around back there like a pair of dice on a craps table or something. And it was like throwing us back there and just like, just, just survive, and here's a throw-up bucket. Like, that was really the extent of our safety, and now there's so much safety. Uh, another way that our traveling experiences have changed is the way that we get directions. How many of you remember going to AAA to get what was called a trip tick, a trip tick, And it was one of these books that you had to kind of flip through, and they would use like a blue magic marker to kind of show you this is the best journey from New York to Virginia Beach. And as they were doing it, they would say, I think there's construction here, so I'm going to take you this way. They're doing their best, but now uh, nowadays, thank God, Google Maps, I mean, it's amazing. It will tell me if there's an accident five miles down the road and reroute me like that. So uh, directions have changed. And how about, this is probably the biggest one. How about the way children entertain themselves when they travel in cars? Uh, Nowadays, it's like I look back in my rearview mirror and my girls have their headphones on iPads, iTouches. They got the internet in the car. I mean, they're connected to the entire world. When I was a kid, it was the most isolated place in the entire world, in the backseat of your parents' car traveling somewhere. We used to have to come up with games like, how many of you remember the alphabet game, where you had to find the letters on other uh, cars' license plates or signs, and you try to go from A to Z as fast as you could, or I spy something blue, or I spy something green, or Uh, All these sort of games, mostly we just were trying to stay alive, bouncing around in the back of the car. But traveling has obviously changed quite a bit over the last 30 to 40 years. This morning, we're going to look at a psalm that was written for travelers, written for travelers thousands of years ago. And it's a song that these travelers would have sung. And they didn't sing this song just to pass the time. They would sing this song for the exact same reasons that we just sang the songs that we sang. They would sing these songs for the exact same reasons that we stand and sing every Sunday morning. We stand and sing every Sunday morning, number one, to remind and strengthen our hearts of what is true. That's one of the main reasons we sing. We also stand and sing to rehearse and remember God's faithfulness. And then we also stand and sing to celebrate God's ongoing and future work in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. And so here in Psalm 121, now Psalm 121 is is one of 15 psalms uh, that begin in Psalm 120 and go through to Psalm 134 that were used by Jewish pilgrims as they traveled to Jerusalem. And these 15 psalms were known as the Songs of Ascent. The reason why they were called the Songs of Ascent is because the city of Jerusalem is located in a plateau in the Judean mountains between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, at an altitude of about 2,500 feet. So that's about a half a mile up. Jerusalem is about a half mile up on a plateau. And so the Jewish faithful would travel, and they would sing these songs as they would go up the road, up the hill to Jerusalem. And that's why it was called the Song of Ascent, because they would ascend up the hill to Jerusalem. And the reason why they were traveling to Jerusalem was because they were going to worship at one of the three pilgrim feasts, the Passover feast. The Feast of Weeks, which we also know as Pentecost, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this journey, this road up this hill, was a journey that could be filled with great danger, certainly with the risk of exhaustion, exposed to the heat in the Middle East, and plenty of reasons to turn back. And so they would sing these songs to strengthen their hearts. And the truth is, this morning, is that every single one of us is on a journey, aren't we? We're journeying through life. We're journeying through situations. We're journeying through seasons. And just this week, I was reminded, even of people in our own church who are in difficult moments. In their journey, this morning as we're gathered together, there's a young couple in our church who had a little baby girl 10 days ago. And they're up at Galasanos right now because she's uh, not keeping anything down. and So the doctors are trying to figure out how to best help this little girl. There's another couple in our church uh, who are in a hospital. They were traveling out west. They're currently in a hospital in Cleveland. And the wife is facing a myriad of physical challenges. There's a single mom in our church who just recently received a very difficult medical diagnosis. These are real things happening in real lives. And that's just medical stuff. There's emotional challenges. There's financial challenges. There's uh, relational challenges. And when we are on this journey, we need strength. Strength. We, we, we need hope. We need joy because there are dangers around us. There, is th- there are things that exhaust us, and there are reasons to want to give up and turn back. We need strength. And so when we look at this psalm this morning, here's what I want us to keep in mind. This psalm that gave strength to travelers thousands of years ago will give strength to your heart this morning. And we're going to learn three things about our God, and here's the first thing that we learned from Psalm 121, uh, and jo- Joel read this for us this morning, that God is our maker. He's our maker. Let's look at the first two verses of Psalm 121. The psalmist writes uh, in verse 1 I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Well, why is this traveler lifting his or her eyes to the hills? There actually are two possible explanations. And different commentators feel differently about this. So I'm just going to share both of them with you because I actually think they're both helpful. Some commentators say, well, when the psalmist lifted up his or her eyes to the hills, they were looking at the hills as a possible source of refuge and strength. They're saying, maybe in the hills I will find strength. And so they lifted their eyes up to the hills and say, is that where I will find my help? And then other commentators say, no, the hills would have represented danger. It would have represented a difficult journey. It would have represented robbers and heat exhaustion and all sorts of things awaiting them. So they were looking up not as a source of refuge, but as a source of danger. In other words, the psalmist is either looking at the hills and saying, this is the place where I will find help, or he is saying, this is the place where I will need help. And the truth is, is that in our lives, we're often lifting up our eyes and looking at that. But here's the danger we often get overly focused on either the problem or on false sources of hope. Because the hills themselves couldn't do anything. That's why eventually, you see, he moves on from trusting in the hills to trusting in the God who made the hills. And so instead of worshiping the creator sometimes, we tend to look to, lift our eyes to, and worship the created things. And Paul warns us about this in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter one, he's writing about the unrighteous, and he says this about the unrighteous. He says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. What a sad thing at the end of your life to look back and realize you traded the truth about God for some sort of a lie. You were sold a lie, you were told a lie, you told yourself a lie, you believed a lie, and you traded the truth of God for a lie. Talk about a bad trade. And here's what happens when you trade the truth of God for a lie. It says, so they would worship and serve the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. That's Romans 1.25. Worshiping the things that God created instead of the creator himself. And so the psalmist is either looking to the hills as a possible source of hope, or he's looking at the hills as a possible source of danger. But either way, the psalmist lands in the right place in verse 2 when he says, my help comes from the Lord... Who made heaven and earth. And here's what the psalmist is saying I don't place my hope in the hills, I place my hope in the God who made the hills. And not just the God who made the hills, but the maker of all of heaven and earth. If God, if God is our maker, here's what it means. It sounds very comforting at first, but I want to challenge you with something that it means. If God is your maker, it means you're accountable to Him for how you live your life. If God is our maker, that means he has a design for our lives, a design for who we are, a purpose and a plan for who we are. We didn't make ourselves. He made us. And so now we don't set our own rules in place. We're not self-made men and self-made women. We've been made by God. And so we have a creator that we are accountable to, that we will answer to. But God being our maker also means this, that we have to look to him to really understand this world and to really understand ourselves. You and I can't make any sense of ourselves or our lives or our world apart from God. But isn't it true? So many people try. So many people try to look to other things to make sense of life. But God is our maker. He is the creator. He is the only one who can make sense of our lives and this world. There's a new show on NBC called Making It. And it's hosted by two very funny people, Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman who were acted together in a comedy years ago. But uh, the whole premise of the show is it's kind of like, if you're familiar with the Great British Baking Show or really any of those cooking shows, it's that sort of a premise. It's a competition. It's a reality show. But instead of baking stuff, they're making stuff, and it's a crafting show. So it's like uh, some of them are woodworkers and some of them are good with paper and some of them are good with, with cloth or with thread. And so every episode they're given an assignment and they have to make a craft and then they're judged on it and each week one of them is eliminated. Now, that's my wife's dream show. With my wife, if you don't know this about Erin, she's very good with crafts and she's very artistic. And her previous job she was a framer at a high end store in Manlius. And so she loves that sort of stuff. And so we watched the show together and I look I like to look at her sometimes during the show because she's so into it. She's just like fat I feel like that's how I look when, when we're watching food shows. Like I feel like when she looks at me and there's this mixture of desire and interest and intrigue and uh covetness. You know, I like I feel like that's all Kind of washing over my face as I'm watching shows like Chopped and Beat Bobby Flay. So, but I see that on her face. So now the foot, the shoes on the other foot. So I, I see like it's so interesting to her, and they every week they create two different things, and then the judges come in and look at what they've created, and the creator explains to the judge what they've created, even though the judge are technically the experts in the room. Even though the judges know more about crafting and and that sort of stuff than the actual creators do, it's the creator who explains the creation. Why? Because the creator knows best. The maker knows best as to what the intent was, what the purpose is, how it functions, what it all means. And this is true with God. God is our maker and our creator of all. He knows best. He knows best and he loves best so we can trust him on our journey. He's our maker. Okay, second thing we see in this text is that God is our helper. Uh, Let me, again in verse two, it said, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now look at verses three and four with me. He will not let your foot be moved. Another translation say, he will not let your foot slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is our helper. You know, many years later in John chapter 14, when the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is getting ready to go to the cross, be resurrected, and ascend into heaven, he comforts the disciples who are very frightened by the fact that he's leaving them by saying, if I go, I'm going to send another. And he sends the Holy Spirit, and he calls the Holy Spirit our helper. And so we have this in the Old Testament, we have this in the New Testament, that God is our helper now there's a problem with the word helper because a lot of times when you and I think of helper we think of sort of like lesser skilled sidekicks right people who sort of come alongside us and are supposed to be helping us I think of my daughter sometimes trying to help my wife bake they want to help but it slows her down or like for me like I'm not huge into video games I'm not a big video game player in fact I only have one video game that I ever play And it's FIFA, which is a soccer game. I love playing soccer, but my girls are now at the age that they want to play with me. They want to, quote unquote, help me beat the other team. But I know that if I let them play, it's not going to help me. It's going to hurt me because they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the game. They don't, so they're like wanting to help daddy. So what I do, don't tell them, but what I do is I take their, I take their, I take this terrible. I take the I take the plug on their controller and I put it under the console instead of into the slot. So they're over there playing away and I'm I'm doing my game. I know it's terrible. It's terrible. too competitive. But that's not help. Like that's that's hurt. And so sometimes when we think God is my helper, we think, like we realize He doesn't. he's not like that. He's not as useless as that. But sometimes we think, well, God just kind of shows up when I can't do it myself. I do 75%, and then when I need 25% help, God and the Holy Spirit shows up. That's not the way we understand help. Here's a better way to understand help. Our youngest girl, Madeline, who has cerebral palsy, uh, she can't walk without the assistance. You've probably seen her going around the building this morning without the assistance of what's called a gait trainer. And a gait trainer is just something that kind of supports under her arms and supports under her legs and has wheels on it and allows her to walk. And it's helping her. Now, in that case, that sort of help is what? It's enabling her to do something that she would never be able to do on her own. That's the way that God helps us. He doesn't help us like, sort of like, let me give you a little boost, buddy. Like, let me just kind of help you to the next level. He helps us do things. The Holy Spirit helps us do things that we would never be able to do on our own. Do you know that the Holy Spirit didn't help you? You couldn't love God. You couldn't serve Jesus. You couldn't have patience. You couldn't bear his fruit if the Holy Spirit wasn't helping. And so the, the God is our helper. And right here in the Psalmist it says that he will not let your foot be moved. He will not let your foot slip. And what the psalmist is saying is that God and God alone can steady your journey. How many of you think that, or let me just say this, I've come to think over the years that steadiness is one of the most underrated characteristics in the life of a Christ follower, Just give me people who are steady. Just give me people who are reliable, people who are dependable, people who are not given to great highs and great lows, but walk steadily in the strength of the Spirit. And it has to be the strength of the Spirit. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Only God can help you not slip and fall in your journey. If he's not at work helping you, your foot will slip. But because he's our great helper, he does this for us. And then he goes on to say, the psalmist a couple times says this in this psalm, he will neither slumber nor sleep. That might seem like a weird thing to say about God. But in that culture, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, specifically in Mesopotamian literature, a sleeping God was not an unusual thing. They believed that their gods would sleep. A sleeping god was one who was unresponsive to the prayers of the person calling out for help. Actually, you can go through history and find a recorded Babylonian prayer in which the prayer or the worshiper is wondering out loud, I wonder how long this god will sleep. I wonder when this god will wake up and hear my prayer. In fact, yeah, in First Kings 18, there is a, a really fascinating story where God's prophet Elijah has this showdown with the prophets of Baal. And they're basically saying, let's see which God is the real God. And they set up sort of this challenge, like you pray over this altar, and if your God sends down fire, then your God's the real God, and I'm going to do it. And if my God, Jehovah, Yahweh, sends down fire, then he is the true God. And of course, we know in the end, that's what happens. Uh, God sends down fire over the altar that Elijah sets up and prays over. But while the prophets of Baal are praying to their gods, Uh, they're dancing around they're being super loud they're cutting themselves they're doing all sorts of things why they're trying to get their god's attention like they're trying to wake their god up and elijah starts to mock them it's one of the funnier passages in the old testament in verse 27 elijah says hey guys you have to shout louder for surely he is a god and then he he says this perhaps he's daydreaming maybe he's not paying attention or he's relieving himself. So Elijah's like, maybe he's on the toilet. And he says, or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. Now, when I used to read that, I thought, man, Elijah's having a good time. Like, that's some good trash talk. Like, I could bring that out to the basketball court. Like, (laughs) maybe your jump shot fell asleep. Maybe it's on vacation, right? And so uh, I thought he just was at random sort of like saying things to them. But But I studied it some more, and it's not at random. Every single thing he says, they actually believe their gods did. They believe that their gods would use the restroom. They believe that their gods would take trips and vacations. And they believe that their jobs, their gods would go to sleep. And so he's mocking their gods based on their actual beliefs. So here's what this means for our psalm this morning. When the psalmist says that your God will not slumber nor sleep, he isn't just expressing a truth about God, although he is. He's also exposing all the other gods for what they are. Ridiculous. Worthless unable to do for you what they say they can. And the word of God and the work of the spirit has the power to do the same for you and me today, to expose the worthlessness of our idols. All the other things we put our trust in, all the other things we put our hope in, all the other things we look to for meaning and for value and for identity, they promise one thing, but they deliver another. I think of a uh, guys that like to go out and fish all the time and they use different lures, right? Right, Chuck, different lures. Get the net, get the big net. And uh, plastic lures and rubber lures and, and, and uh, different things and metal lures and they throw them out there and the fish looks real, looks real. The bait looks real um, and they come along and they you know, jump on the hook. And one time uh, I was talking to a guy about this and he said this, he said, the bait is fake, but the hook is real. The bait is fake, but the hook is real. And it's the same thing with the worthlessness of our idols. What they offer is fake, but the hook is real. If it gets in you, it will hook you. It will capture you, and it will kill you eventually. And so exposed. Now, what we learn here is that God as our helper, verse 2, he's, yes, he's all-powerful. He's the maker of heaven and earth. But I love this because in verse 4 we learn, let let this get into your spirit this morning because this will help you. Not only is God all powerful, he's ever watchful. He doesn't slumber, he doesn't sleep. This is the confidence that Christians should walk around with. Not confidence in yourself, not confidence in your own goodness, but confidence in the fact that you serve a God who is all powerful. He made the heavens and the earth, but he's ever watchful. He never stops thinking about you. He never takes his eye off of you. He knows every spiral that falls. He knows every hair on your head. And if he knows that, how much more does he know the season that you're walking through and the help that you need? And how much more able is he to keep your foot from sleeping? So when you have this sort of confidence, it gives within you a strength. But here's what else it gives you. It gives you rest. You can sleep because he doesn't. You can rest because he's watching. He's looking out for you. So God is our maker. God is our helper. And then lastly this morning, God is. Is our keeper. Let's read the last four verses of Psalm 121 together, beginning in verse 5. The psalmist says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That word keep shows up over and over in this psalm. In the the Hebrew, it's the word "shamar," And it means to keep, to guard, to watch over. And listen to this. I like this definition. To attend to carefully. To pay careful, constant attention. Do you believe that your God is paying constant, careful attention to you? To your life? To who you are? That's what it means. That he is your keeper. In the Psalms, it says that he keeps Israel which means he keeps his people, is the corporate entity of who his people are, but also boils down to he keeps you. So he's keeping you as an individual. And there's interesting, I want to look at a couple of phrases here and then we're going to finish. He talks about the idea that he is your shade on your right hand. How many people love shade? How many people are glad that we have a pavilion? Could, because it might rain a little bit too, but how many people are glad we have a pavilion at the picnic today? I'm a shade guy. Like, anytime I go out on the back porch and people are like, "Uh, you want to sit outside? I'm like, ah, is your inside table broken? Because I would prefer to... Sit where there's air condition and uh, and shade. I am not a heat guy. I'm not built for it. I just start sweating, and I don't like to eat when I'm hot physically. And uh, and so I I like shade. I always look for shade. And when there's a table where like you know there's got the um, umbrella in the middle, the umbrella doesn't provide shade to every corner of the table usually, unless the sun is directly above. So I'm strategically positioning myself to get to the shaded area of the table. We were at the beach a few weeks ago in New Jersey, and it's so funny because people go to the beach to get the sun. But then they get there and they spend 10 minutes putting up an umbrella. So it's like you go to the beach to get sun and then you take 10 minutes to try to drill an umbrella so that you have shade. And shade is a good thing and shade is an important thing. And here the psalmist is saying that when he says that God is your shade at your right hand, he's saying that he gives you comfort. He gives you rest. He gives you protection. Did you notice that the psalmist said the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. What does that mean? What does that mean? The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. I think the sun thing is obvious. This is the Middle East. And they're traveling exposed to the sun, the threat of dehydration, the threat of sunstroke. And the roads to Jerusalem expose travelers to oppressive heat. But why does he need to protect us from the moon by night? What danger is there in the moon? Well, one of the commentators I was, commentaries I was studying said that, When you look back at medical diagnostic texts from this time in Babylon and Assyria, they actually believed, many people believed, that the moon, uh, too much exposure to the moon could cause a patient to actually, or not patient, could cause a person to actually lose his or her mind. And that's where we actually get the words still in our vocabulary, like moonstruck. And actually, if you think of the word lunatic, the word lunar is right in there. And so there actually was this sort of ancient belief that if you were overexposed in the darkness to the moon, and there was, of course, the moon created all this uncertainty and mystery because the sun was the same every day, but, you know, the moon changes. It goes from full to half to quarter, and so it was a source of great confusion and fear back then. And so they thought too much exposure to the moon actually would cause people, one of the diagnostic tests would say, cause a patient to grind his teeth and his hands begin to tremble, which is a mental sort of disturbance. So... What we can see in this text is that God here is saying, I can keep your body and your mind. I'll keep both. I will keep the sun from affecting your body, but I will keep the moon. And Even though it was more of a superstition than an actual reality, I will keep your mind. God cares about and keeps all of us, mind, body, soul, spirit. In fact, in verse seven, when it talks about him keeping your life, that Hebrew word means the whole living person, all of you. And then I just want to point out one more thing. In verse 7, it says that the Lord will keep you from all evil. How many of you hear that verse, the Lord will keep you from all evil? And you can think of times in your life where maybe it seems like the Lord didn't keep you from all evil. So how can it say that the Lord will keep you from all evil? And in light of other scriptures, we have to interpret this to mean that kept from all evil evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one a prepared one. So not one where we are sort of in a vacuum or in a bubble and unaffected by the brokenness of the world, but a life in which we are prepared to walk through it with grace and with strength. In fact, if you jump, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 21, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's foretelling difficult times. Here's some of the things Jesus tells his disciples are coming, persecution. He says, you're gonna be persecuted. You're gonna be betrayed by your families, like your mom and your sisters and your brothers and your dad, they're gonna sell you out. Uh, He says, you're gonna be hated for my name's sake. And then Jesus even says, some of you are going to be put to death. Now, that's some pretty bad things coming their way. But in the midst of all of that, Jesus also says this, and it seems to be such a contradiction. Not a hair of your head will perish. But Jesus literally says, some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. And I'm thinking, what good is the hair on my head if I'm dead? Like, you can have the hair on my head. Not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. How do we understand this? And here's how we understand it. When it says here, when Jesus says in Luke 21, and when the psalmist says this in Psalm 121, that we will be kept from all evil, or that not a hair on our head will perish, it's really a metaphorical way of saying that God's people will suffer no eternal spiritual harm no eternal spiritual harm. In other words, God will keep you through the temporary, through here and now, but ultimately God will keep you into eternity. And that's where our lives will truly be protected from all evil, where we will no longer experience sickness and shame and disease. So we will not get through this journey unscathed, but he will keep us from the sort of evil, listen, the sort of evil that not just can destroy your body, but it can destroy your soul. That's the sort of evil we really need to be protected from. And by the way, the evil that you and I need to be most protected from is usually not the evil around us. It's often the evil within us. And only God can protect us from that. And then the psalm ends with this. He will keep your going out and your coming in. And what that simply means is the entirety of your journey, wherever you're at in life, if you're young, if you're older, whatever season you're in, he's there with you, keeping you through your entire Journey, And let me close by reading to you what it says in Jude chapter 1, verse 24. And maybe close your eyes and just hear what the Spirit is saying through this. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Listen to that phrase again. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God keeps you from stumbling. And I love this, to present you blameless before his presence. Well, what hope do you and I have to be presented blameless before God? And our only hope is Jesus that Jesus is our keeper, and that he kept his promise. God kept his promise to us because Jesus kept our promises for us. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And because of that, we can have his righteousness, we can be blameless in the very presence of the glorious God. So whatever journey you're on this morning, the Spirit wants to speak to your heart and remind you, God is your maker, God is your helper, and God is your keeper. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, help us to receive this truth. Help us not just to be hearers of the word, but help us to be doers of the word. And by your spirit, help us to apply the truth of this text, this message to our lives, to trust in you as our maker, our helper, and our keeper. Faithful, faithful God, we love you.